This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In the realm of garden ways and traditional garden design being inextricably interwoven with a culture, for me, Japanese garden design and techniques stand out. I am not alone in this feeling, and today on Cultivating Place, we're joined by Leslie Buck, a gardener and professional aesthetic pruner who, at the age of 35, hit the pause button on her successful Bay Area business and went off in search of an aesthetic pruning apprenticeship in the famed gardens of Kyoto, Japan. Her new book out from Timber Press, Cutting Back, My Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto, recounts her experience. Leslie joins us today via Skype to share more. Welcome, Leslie. Hi. I really want to start by setting the context of your earliest experiences in life, those that you feel formed your own love of nature, of the wild, of gardens, your earliest introduction to these in life. My introduction is very similar to other gardeners that I've met in that I had access to nature when I was a child. Uh, Unusually so, I lived in Oklahoma City, but we had a little forest in our backyard. Uh, I lived on a dead-end street, and my sister and I uh, were allowed to play quite a bit in the in this little forest and just meander down a small stream and also growing up until the age of 13 every year I would go to Santa Fe New Mexico with my hippie church community (laughs) and we'd camp out for two weeks and my favorite thing was making little homemade bows perhaps my early hand-eye coordination. (laughs) And then I loved sleeping on the tent without a a pad. I interacted with nature when I was a young girl. And I, I found a lot of pruners and gardeners when I asked them, they too had some kind of access. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's so important for children to get out into nature. Mm -hmm. And were either of your parents or grandparents or anyone in your immediate uh, network or family unit gardeners, per se? My grandma was a tenant farmer in Oklahoma City, which meant she was a migrant farmer. They never owned land, but she was the oldest of 13 kids, and they worked on a farm and... She said she started working when she was tall enough to stand on a milk crate and do dishes for the family. (laughs) And when I visited her, she'd always have us work in the garden when I was a little girl. And we'd probably last about five minutes before we'd get bored and want some watermelon. But I, I do think that she was imparting to us this love of gardening that she had. Talk about then where you went for your formal education and your your first careers, particularly in the journey that led you to this idea of pruning or aesthetic pruning. My mom moved us out to California when I was 13, and I ended up studying fine art. I was just drawn to the visual arts, and after I uh, graduated, I began doing 
book repair in the conservation department of Berkeley University. And once again, I think this is my desire. When I did fine art, I did painting and then I did collage. I was getting closer and closer to my medium. And then I think it was just my desire to use my hands. And after many years of doing that, I realized I wanted to perhaps work outside. I wasn't sure what. So I did this practice where every Friday I figured out a way to take the day off. The university allowed me to do that. And I just did something I loved. I just said, I'm not allowed to clean or to do any calls. It's just things that I loved. And I found every day I was gardening. So from that, I decided to pursue some horticulture classes. And and that was a little odd because I was a little allergic to dust. (laughs) (laughs) And I had tried working with landscapers, but I would get a little bit of asthma. But I just said, you know what? I want to garden, so I'm going to go to this horticulture school, and I'm going to see if there's something else I can do. So I met my teacher, Dennis Makashima, at a career night at Merritt College Horticulture School and decided to take classes from him. He had all these stories about plants and trees that intrigued me. And this is often how I pursue goals. I just go towards what I think I might be interested in and I see what I find. And from that, I took a bonsai class and I was still hesitant because I was, um, you know, I thought, oh, I'm not sure about these plants that you have to prune to such refined detail. So at the break, I went outside and there was a pruning group that Dennis had set up, no matter where I went, he had something for me. And these people were pruning a Monterey pine and asked if I wanted to help. I told them I'd never done that. And they said, well, that's why we're here. And uh, this was the first time I entered this group that my my mentor had set up where once a month we go to a nonprofit garden and the more experienced pruners teach the lesser experience. So it's a mentorship of sorts. And I, you know, ended up climbing a tree and I was so nervous and I was shaking, but I just had this feeling and I described this in my memoir Mm -hmm. that something important was happening. Mm -hmm. I'd had the very odd, odd feeling and I slipped a branch of the tree into my pocket And I I actually still have that branch. And indeed, this person who had set up this group would become my future mentor, teach me most of what I know about pruning and really change my life. I, I love this vision of you climbing this tree and sort of shaking and then slipping a little bit of the tree that spoke to you in your pocket, Leslie, and this sense of following intuition and following messages from the universe very much comes across in the book and your recounting of your experience on this journey. If you could, for listeners, describe what it is you're talking about and and its kind of importance in the idea of 
landscape design and refinement? It's a very unusual type of pruning. In part, it is based on Japanese garden style pruning. The gardens in Japan that are the top gardens and that I worked with strive to do, they're gardens that look so natural, you can't even hardly tell they're pruned. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I'm moving towards when I do what I call aesthetic pruning. It's very natural pruning. It's gradual changes. What I tell people is if they're interested in learning aesthetic pruning, to go out, whatever tree they're going to work on or shrub, go out and try and find one that is mature and older and study it. And this is something they do in very authentic bonsai. They study what the plant looks like and then they bring characteristics of that older plant into the plant they're working on. Characteristics that they find are more poetic and beautiful and and the trees relaxed, such as a young redwood, the branches will pop up and go everywhere. But an old redwood, the lower branches will be swaying down. There'll be spaces between the branches as you move up. And then the branches start popping more upward at the top. So it'll, and then the trunk, the massive trunk will show off at an older age. So these are all characteristics that I would try and show off, even if I have a a redwood that I keep at 15 feet tall. Mm. And I had to prune it three times a year for about five years before it finally stopped reacting. I prune it to look like a hundred year old redwood. And, and it does, it's just, it's a tree that my client sees when she opens her front door. So she can't really see the top. So there's no point in allowing it to get 100 feet tall, which redwoods will do, as we know, and shade her whole garden. All that she needs is the 15 feet. So when she opens her door, she sees those beautiful lower branches that are swaying down. And then I prune the upper stems so that the tree gets smaller and smaller, just like on an older tree. And if if someone didn't know that a redwood tree got that big, they wouldn't know that this tree had ever been pruned. Mm. That That's what I'm striving for. There are general tricks, kinds of cuts you can make to keep something small and to reduce reaction. Because when you prune, the tree will react. And that's what we're playing with when we're aesthetic pruners. But we are striving towards the look of the older tree, a very natural look. And that's what the gardeners in Japan are striving towards now. And also in the landscape as a whole, like how all the plants work together, they're Mm -hmm. striving towards creating an atmosphere a feeling of a slice of nature. I always say there's probably shearing in Japan in each garden, but it's a minimal part of the garden. Mm -hmm. The rest of the garden is much more natural than people think. Some people think it's actually a forest. They don't even realize it's a tree that's been pruned for 100, 200 years. That's how natural they can get these trees that you know, a pine, maybe it's 15, 20 feet tall, but an actual pine would be 
you know, 40 to 60 feet. Mm -hmm. So I tell my friends when we're in Japan, I say, look at that pine over there that's 20 feet tall. I said, that one's been worked on twice a year for at least 50 to 100 years. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Leslie Buck, professional pruner in San Francisco's Bay Area. When she was in her mid-30s, she undertook to find an apprenticeship in her field in the historic garden city of Kyoto, Japan. She learned about the nuances of Japanese gardens, Japanese gardening dress code and tools, as well as finding the heart at the center of any garden, as a viewer and as a gardener. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Leslie Buck, author of Cutting Back, My Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto. Welcome back. This description in the book is is really powerful, and it's when you, you kind of you reiterate over the course of the book the perseverance and the diligence that's involved. And, and one of the things I would like you to discuss a little bit is this idea of pruning being one of the garden arts. And there's so much implied just in that phrase alone when you use it in the book, the fact that gardening is seen as an art, that pruning is one art form in that whole school of art, and that the Japanese mentorship and apprenticeship that you got to experience really helped you to kind of imprint that concept on your on on all parts of you on your head on your heart on the way your hands worked uh, seemed really fascinating to me so to talk a little bit about the importance of that art so when you say they work this hard to be this naturalistic and they're trying to get a slice of nature. You also make a statement in the book that the concepts and the values that underlie Japanese gardening are often misunderstood in the West. And sometimes there is kind of a romanticization of it. Sometimes there is a spiritual element that is added sometimes incorrectly. Talk about those concepts for a minute. I want to go first to this idea of pruning being one of the garden art forms. Most gardeners in Japan learn what I call five garden arts. They learn design, rock work, making things with bamboo, pruning, and maintenance. So they learn all five, and that's why their apprenticeship can take, say, 15 years, because that's about three years for each, what I call an art. Mm -hmm. And that that's similar to here. Maybe it takes, you know, at least three years practice to be a little bit proficient in landscaping or maintenance or rock work. And when they build a garden, perhaps one person does the design and then another person does the installation and then another does the pruning. It's uh, considered the person who does the installation has equal design say as the landscape designer. And then the person who does the pruning also has equal design say. And this is something that's very different than out here in the West where it's the designer and then 
tends to be less skilled maintenance afterwards. They actually have pruners and maintenance workers who are highly trained and in both you know how to do design and how to do this natural pruning. Um, so oh, I always say the the landscaper puts the paint on the canvas in Japan and the pruner moves the paint around over time because mm. when you're pruning a little eight foot tree, I mean, I can let it get 60 feet. I can keep it 15. I can have the branch move right or left. Uh, if it's a backdrop tree, I might prune it kind of generally. And if it's a tree near the front door, I might give it more detail to draw somebody in as if they're looking through a magnifying glass. There's a lot as a pruner I can do to create atmosphere mm -hmm. in the garden. So if we had more trained pruners, which I will say uh, Merritt College has one of the only pruning programs in the country, except the Portland Japanese Garden just started a, a training school they study plants no matter where they're from. Even if it's an olive, they'll look for that 100-year-old olive. And they're trained to make these changes in the landscape over time. It is more than just skill. And that's, that's what I'm... That's what I talk about in the book. I mean, a lot of people, yeah, they say, oh, that's a Zen garden. I, I talk about this. Um, that when you're when the gardeners I met in Japan and worked with, I never heard anybody talk about religion. Perhaps some of them might have been religious and coming from a religious point of view. There's no problem with that. But they're really interested in skill and training and doing that's the number one doing something over and over and over and getting very good at it. Mm -hmm. Um, then there's something else that they were teaching me that I d almost didn't even compute till later. And, and that's what I call the, the heart of the garden. Mm -hmm. And that is what the gardeners, they wanted to teach me too, was, you know, weather can be very rough. <laughs> People think, oh, they always say, Leslie, you're so lucky to work in the garden. <laughs> and I almost, I don't want to ruin their image. So I go, oh, thank you. But really I'm thinking, oh my God, it's just so hot. Every afternoon I'm blistering hot here. Every morning I'm freezing. My toes are going numb. I'm complaining all the time. Um, it's generally at the end of the day, I go, wow, I look at the tree and I go, you are really beautiful. And I feel that satisfaction. But I have to work at it. I have to work with nature. It's always kind of trying to test me to see if I really want to do this. And um, and just that, that struggle. Gardening, I've heard, is one of the last crafts done traditionally in Japan. It's one of the last ones that is still very physical. So they wanted me to be strong and to be tough so that I could keep going in this craft. So they're always pushing me to work harder and faster. Um, there was this sense of they were trying to toughen me up 
so both so that I could continue as a gardener, but also so I developed this relationship with the plants. Mm-hmm. But the relationship is so much deeper. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of passion these gardeners have with the plants. I mean, they could go off and do computers and earn more money after just five years of training. They're training in the gardens five to 15 years, 10 to 12 hour days, six days a week, Mm. running the whole time. They run to different projects. They don't walk and they work as fast as they can. Um, So they have a certain passion for gardens um, that, you know, when they enter the field in the first place, but, but it's also, they continue to develop that as, as they're training. And I think that's why, um, when you're in Japan, you are given such respect by the public because they realize how hard you're training as a gardener. Um, and people appreciate that. You know, I wanted to see how good I was when I went to Japan. And as a gardener in America, we often struggle with feeling respect for what we do. Um, It's kind of considered manual labor. And I guess I was wanting to, you know, I wanted to be one of the best. I wanted to feel a little bit, a little bit of a sense of pride. And what I learned from these gardeners was I don't have to look outside myself. I don't have to wait for someone to congratulate me or give me respect or tell me I did a good job. The way that I felt pride at the end of the day, and it's what I saw them doing, is they always work a little bit harder than what is expected of them. And I think this is Japanese culture. I think it happens in other uh, vocations too. but they would always work a little bit harder than what was expected. They work a little bit longer. They carry two ladders instead of one. They were on a set salary. So I don't, I, for the longest time, I couldn't figure out why they were working so hard. (laughs) Why were they running? But when you do that, at the end of the day, you feel good about yourself. I can always say, you know what? I did not just the best that I could, but I, I did a little more than the best that I could. Now I realize if I just really try hard at whatever I do, whether it's doing the dishes or doing the gardens or doing a sketch, I love to sketch. If I just do my best, I can feel good about myself. When at the age of 35, you said, okay, I'm, I'm going to go find this apprenticeship. I'm going to stop my job for a second at the, you know, possible loss of my business or its momentum or my um, intimate relationship. And I'm going to go to Japan and I'm going to try and make this work. Do you think that not only, I mean, as you say, do you think you were not only looking for this increased skill and this increased um, sense of craftsmanship and um, respect, but you were also looking for that, almost that next layer of your own self-confidence and awareness that you just described? Is that part of what you were looking for when you went? I always had the sense that whatever I did, 
in life, I wanted to do it the best that I could. I am, I, I call myself a type A wannabe because <laughs> I don't learn things easily. So I always feel like I'm not quite the type A, but I would like to be. So I, that was part of why I wanted to go to Japan. But, but it was deeper than that. It's my calling mm -hmm. that I went to Japan and I wrote this book. It just, it was something I had to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was in a, a great relationship and I just thought I have to go to Japan. But it was a feeling in me, no, no, this is what's important. You have to go. And I didn't even know why. So I went and things just, you know, I just, oh, I need to find a place to stay. Suddenly that somebody said, I have a place for you to stay. And mm -hmm. there I am. It takes people often a year to find a company to work in. You know, I asked around and here these referrals just tumbled into my lap. And then I, I won't give away uh, which company I ended up working in, <laughs> in the memoir, but, um, but that too, it, it felt like it wasn't going to happen at all. And then it just tumbled into my lap. I always put one step forward in this journey and, and it, it would move like an escalator ahead of me. And the same thing happened with uh, writing, writing the book. I just felt I had to write the story. It was, it was a little voice in my head that came to me one day. It just said, you know, I, I was uh, hanging out a couple years after I came back and I was like thinking to, I was thinking to myself, you know, Leslie, you have done all your dreams, um, even going to Japan, you've done it all. So what do you want to do now? I like, I like dreaming. And this voice came into my head and it said, write the book. I started a practice of on Fridays, I, after one o'clock, after I'd get everything done, I would sit down and just write for four hours. And I did that for seven years. And over that time period, just like pruning, I practiced my writing. And over time, my writing improved. These things, they just kept happening so easily when I just went towards them. Now, not everything in my life happens like that, you know? <laughs> I go towards things and then I just see what happens. Mm -hmm. And if it, you know, if this isn't working, then I go another direction. And, and I, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more okay with certain things that I've wanted not happening. Cause I've always felt like, you know, this book was the thing I had to get done. You know, I, I sketch everywhere I go and, that helps me slow down and, and look at the journey as I'm going towards that bucket list. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you talk about the sketching a little bit in your time in Japan and how that did actually help center you in a couple of very crucial moments. Now, I'm sure there were more of them, but as they got edited into the, the story, as it was presented... Um, there was a key moment, actually, where you were sketching at one of the, the most famous gardens. I think that maybe was the day you were waiting to 
to find out if you were going to go or you were it was before you went on the interview that you weren't even sure you wanted the interview and and then something changed i think you're you're sketching it's almost like a physical visualization or something of the places that you you ended up arriving at and knowing that you really did want to be there the idea of the way gardens and gardeners are valued was so striking. And I, and I think we, again, this is one of the things we might mythologize, but it's, it definitely came across in your story that gardens are valued in a very different way and gardeners are respected and revered in a very different way in the Japanese culture. Were there any surprises for you in, in what you learned along these levels? Oh, yeah. Uh, take, for instance... That garden you were just talking about, I believe it's Ryoanji, which is a famous rock garden. And I went there and I was sketching the rocks. It's almost like, sketching is almost like a meditation to me. A Japanese gardener once taught me, don't just go to our gardens and take a photo and walk off. Yeah. The way these gardens are experienced historically is people... Maybe it was a garden outside their home and they just, you know, would notice it every day. Or maybe, you know, it's a, an emperor or, um, or royalty and they'd sit. You know, the gardens in Japan are often viewed from inside a building. Ryoanji is one that I remember it being viewed from inside a building. So I went and I began sketching and it helped me slow down. I was noticing people around me and these kids and they were giggling and that helped lighten my heart a little bit. And then I noticed how they were counting the rocks and I found out this design concept in the garden where people say there's always one rock hidden no matter where you stand. Mm -hmm. And that started my thoughts of, oh, this is kind of how I feel right now that no matter which path I choose, I feel like I'm missing out on something. And, well, isn't that like life? Mm. And, you know, the gardens in Japan, I think they're, they're meant to evoke what we find in nature when we take hikes. So we go into nature and people say, you know, some people want to play when they take hikes. Some people want to uh, talk to a friend. And some people just want to think. And, and some people want to pray. And that's what these gardens in Japan, they, they have a certain space in them that allows you to think how you want to think, just like nature allows us space to think, to have our own thoughts. Mm. Not just the visitor has room to think, but also the gardener. A friend of mine said, when I'm pruning, I don't know who's helping who. <laughs> is it the tree I'm helping or is the tree helping me that day? Right. So the garden acts, I always feel like, like the conductor. It is silently and quietly bringing different people and insects and animals together while you work or sit there. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Our guest today, Leslie Buck, author of Cutting Back, My Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto, recounts her experience journeying in search of an apprenticeship in her craft. 
In her three months of apprenticeship, through wind and rain and ice, she learned as much about herself as she did about her craft. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Leslie Buck, author of Cutting Back, My Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto, out now from Timber Press. Welcome back. You have two or three moments in the book where you describe this very traditional practice of garden viewing, where people go and sit in an indoor or or an enclosed space and actually just look at a garden. And um, there was one in the garden you just described, and then there was one where you went to someone's house and um, she showed you her garden viewing window and how when she opened it to a certain level, you saw one sort of span of the garden. And then when she opened it fully, you had this very different experience. And I think she had red was kind of a signature color for her. And she had red uh, coming to the front of your focal awareness in each season in a different way. And I thought that was really compelling. Yeah, they really uh, know the art of viewing in Japan. I'll tell you, with my uh, pruning clients, I'm always moving the barbecues out of the way of the window. Or <laughs> And then if there's a table and chair, I go, you know, all winter, what do you, what's your relationship with the garden? Oh, we just look at it out this window. We don't even go outside. So I say, well, move the table and chair over so you can see the garden. So really think about how you're seeing the garden from inside because it can um, lengthen the time that you have a relationship with the garden. But this particular home, what she did was she had me walk in and she had two sets of shutters, both top row and bottom. And I walked in the room and she opened the bottom layer of shutters so I could just see a little bit of gravel and plants. Uh, and she said, this is like when you first meet someone and you're flirting. It's just I'm giving you a taste of the garden. And then she opened the top layer and she said, this is more a blossoming of the relationship where you get to see, you know, the pine tree and the camellias and this whole set, like the garden as a whole. And then she said, now let's sit down. And we sat down on the tatami and um, and we looked at the garden from there and she goes, you know, this is how in a relationship you you rest in in how you view this person. So now we have a chance to just sit and enjoy the garden. I just visited Giverny Monet's garden mm. uh, about a week ago. I sat and sketched. So I, or I would stand and sketch. When I sat, the most magical things happened. Sometimes a child would sit next to me and we'd start talking. And one young girl, I gave paper and colored pencils and we both sketched together. And one time I looked to my left and this weird object crossed the path and went away. And I was, what was that? And I realized it was a wet, 
duckling <laughs> going from one pond to another stream when he thought the garden paparazzi, all these people taking photos, weren't looking. Um, and it was just, I tell you, that was almost the highlight of Giverny with that little wet duckling trying to quickly cross the path. Yeah. And I just couldn't have seen it unless I was still and just looking. Um, and that's, that's the kind of thing that uh, I appreciate about the Japanese. They're, they're willing to just be quiet and experience gardens. Yeah. There are so, so many threads I want to follow up on, and, and now I'm becoming very aware of our time. And so I would like to follow up on this very interesting relationship to tools and this very interesting palette of tools that you used and were introduced to and and became familiar with in Japan that we don't have here. And I, I would love you to talk a little bit about some of your favorite tools, especially those as a pruner. Well, uh, it brings to mind an incident when a company would make handmade ladders. I mean, they would use aluminum ladders, but they'd also use these uh, ladders made of wood and bamboo. And um, one time they had to bend one of the bamboo poles to make the ladder and they put it in the fire and it was crackling. And my boss, who was very macho, um, quite a bit older than me, and he threw his wrist cuffs into the fire because they were just old. And I snatched them out. And, oh, he just thought that was so funny and ridiculous. <laughs> but I was determined to get his old wrist cuffs. Um, but it, it is similar to them in that they have a rake that is old. They fix it. And, you know, they sharpen their tools. They don't just buy new blades. And sometimes they're using factory tools made, but often like the brooms they use were made by uh, bamboo craftspeople. And the brooms can cost over $100 when they're made by a bamboo craftsperson. And the rakes, once again, um, could be handmade. And then sometimes we'd have these big buckets that we'd sweep soil into. We had these little little hand brooms, and that's the one that I would love to be sold in the United States because they clean the rocks. In general, you know, you can just find the tool that works right for you as a printer. I mean, really, in the States, all I use is pruning shears and a little hand saw and a rake and a tarp and maybe a pole pruner mm -hmm. and ladder. And that's it. But I, I hold on to them, uh, fix them as best I can. I think it's something you get when you're working in a garden and you start appreciating the older trees, this depth of time, what, what these trees bring to the garden. It's not just... The, the tree has a certain look, but it's also who stood under the tree. And, you know, what happened to this tree over the past hundred years? And same with my tools. I like, you know, all the years I've used it, um, I just tend to want to sharpen my pruning shears. So I appreciated 
that aspect of how they would cherish their tools as long as they could. But, they, you know, it wasn't uh, religious or anything. If they needed a new tool, they'd get one. They're kind of, you know, when you get down to it, they can be no nonsense. But I did appreciate all the different ladders they had. They were just masters at ladder placement, both extension ladders and three-legged ladders. They were always using ladders in just the right way in the right position, sometimes using poles Mm -hmm. that they would tie to the trees so they would use them to walk around the tree. They understood their tools. Yeah. That description in the book where you, I think it's the day that you're trying to get ready to go to the party. So everyone's trying to finish up on, you know, late on a Saturday afternoon and and you are working high in a tree and you describe this setup as you were just describing, wherein there are ladders up some trees and then poles across others and you think you're almost done and, and you're pruning your tree and the man next to you is pruning his tree and he sees the, the boss coming and he's sort of trying to give you a like a little message of prune that branch, prune that branch. <laughs> and, but he's yeah, trying oh to do it God. silently. I loved that one. Um, this was a little bit into my apprenticeship and me and I had one coworker that could speak English. So we would hang out occasionally and we'd become friends. And I was up in a pine and I could hear the boss going from worker to worker, yelling instructions and yelling was not to be mean. It was like a drill sergeant in the military who cares about his soldiers. It's to give you expert instruction. Um, So I could hear him going person to person, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm next. And he started (laughs) coming towards me, and I, I was working on a branch, and I just knew I should make a certain cut, but it was a big cut. So I hesitated, and indeed, my boss was coming towards me and I could see right behind him, my coworker motioning for me. He kept saying, <laughs> cut, cut, cut with his hands. <laughs> and I just didn't do it in time. I ended up making, I think, a halfway or something. And then the boss, you know, he part of the training there is to give correction. And you have to have the humility to take that correction. Mm. You can't get upset that they're correcting you all the time. It's just the way they teach. So he grabbed my shears and this branch that only I could saw, he cut with pruning shears Mm. in one snip. And I was like, "Ooh, (laughs) I should have done that. That's when I started feeling a little bit of pride that the boss was starting to correct me. You know, I didn't want him to treat me like a visitor or an American, Dennis Makashima. He always said, you know, when the boss starts correcting you, you have to take it as an honor that he's te- he's treating you like the other workers. They were really trying to make me an expert craftsperson. Because mm-hmm. when I left, whatever they taught me, you know, whatever I knew was going to represent them. And that's how they feel when they're training someone. They want that person to be really good because whatever you are when you leave the training represents them. So they're very vigorous with their training. It means a lot to them. Mm -hmm. Um, 
they were always giving me jobs that were just a little bit harder than what I could do. They, they would really admire my determination. So they were always trying to install this, like, come on, Leslie, try, try, try harder. And as usual, at the end of the day, that's what made them feel good about themselves as pruners in their profession. And it is what today I carry with me and makes me feel good. Yeah. How many years has it been since you were there? 2000. Okay. So it has been, what, 16 years. It was such a hard journey. I would feel a little nauseous when I thought about the journal I wrote. Mm. But then when I had this thought, you've got to write this story, I started reading the, um, these very brief notes I take per day. And it reminded me of, you know, each day. And then I'd rewrite it. And all these memories came back. I mean, I encourage people when they travel, just take a little notepad, something light they can carry around and make little notes. With those notes, I thought about what happened. And I realized as I was writing over those seven years, how much was happening to me, mm-hmm. how much I was learning. I, it was all going so fast. I had no idea. <laughs> and I've learned a lot more over the past decade and a half. So it helped add to the story. It wasn't until later that I realized certain things that I could add to the book. It's so rewarding to just ruminate about these journeys we have um, that I highly recommend it to anyone. I I didn't even travel that much the seven years I was writing it because I would tell people, you know, I am traveling every week. I'm traveling again in Japan. I have, I just don't have any desire to do more. So I would like to end with um, a concept that you bring up towards the end of the book and um, with the sort of wisdom of, of hindsight and immersing yourself and, and, you know, looking at your experience in overview at the end of the book, you talk about a concept called turning the kaleidoscope. And I'd like to end with you just describing that for listeners. Oh, yeah. And I I came up with that term later when I was ruminating. And I, this journey and and the way I like to live life is like turning the kaleidoscope. Um, I'm moving around. I, I don't just look. I actually, I interact. So... I'm not the kind of person to just go into a museum and look at art. I want to go home and I want to do some art. Like I want to sketch. So what if it's not that good? Um, I'm just doing and I love, you know, going out to dinner, but I also love coming home and cooking and that's turning the kaleidoscope. And I love looking at gardens and relaxing, but I, you know, the other day I went in my backyard and, I, you know, I needed to weed and I, boy, I put off working in my own garden because I work in gardens so much. I don't want to do it when I get home. So I was in the backyard and I was pulling weeds and I was a little bit resentful. I was like, you guys, you take up every bit of my life and here I have to pull these weeds. And then I looked over and I noticed these bees and I just thought, you know, 
I don't normally see bees in my garden, but I've been doing more planting and I have more flowers. And I realized that I was attracting bees into my garden. And it was like this big fat one and it was just buzzing around. And, and I just gave a little sigh and I thought, Leslie, remember, you got to turn the kaleidoscope <laughs> to discover these gems in life. You know, you don't just look through a kaleidoscope. You, yeah, you don't just look through it, you turn it and these magical images appear. And that's what, um, what I, what I do in the garden is I turn the kaleidoscope and I'm in there interacting. Yeah. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for asking me. Leslie Buck is a professional aesthetic pruner in San Francisco's Bay Area. Her book from Timber Press, Cutting Back, My Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto, recounts her experience journeying in search of an apprenticeship in her craft with some of the top masters in the field in the storied garden town of Kyoto. In her three months apprenticeship in Kyoto, her strength, endurance, courage, and resilience were tested, and she learned as much about herself and her own culture as she did about the historic techniques of traditional Japanese gardening and gardens. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you enjoy Cultivating Place and value these conversations, please subscribe to Cultivating Place on iTunes or Stitcher and give it a rating and a review. Or, most meaningfully, share it with others who value this level of conversation about these things we love and which connect us. Together, we make a difference. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.